Well, good morning, Creekside. I'm, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, how amazing to start our worship by um, taking the Lord's Supper together. It's just such a good centering thing, like regardless of the passage, regard, regardless of which book of the Bible we're going through, regardless of any of that, we come back again and again to this, which is Jesus offered himself for us and we have life in that. I mean, it's incredible. So um, this morning we're going to continue in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it. Otherwise, I'll put it on the screen for you. And um, what we've been doing is just looking at week by week, um, Paul has this interaction. Paul sent out as a missionary going, and he spent maybe three weeks, maybe three months with this little church in Thessalonica, and then got chased off because of persecution. And uh, he's writing back and just sending them uh, this, this encouragement, sending them this, this instruction. And this morning he's going to, uh, we're going to be in chapter 4. So First Thessalonians this morning, 4, um, verses 13 to 18. But as he, as he goes through this, this morning, I want to I kind of lead us into it by telling you a story, okay? And this is the story of Austin Chapman. So Austin Chapman was uh, born deaf, so his whole life couldn't hear. He could kind of hear, like, sounds a little bit, like, but they was always, like, garbled and whatever. And so he'd watch, like, spend his life watching friends and family listening to music. And, um, and you see them, like, enjoying music, and he's like, that does not, I, like, whatever I'm hearing is not what they're hearing, you know? Seeing people dancing and looking like idiots and being like, like, what's the connection here between the, the sounds that I'm hearing and what these people are doing, which is a fair description of my dancing at, like, any time, you know? But for him, it was just everybody, right? <clears throat> and so he went through his whole life being deaf, and then in his 20s, um, they invented a thing called the cochlear implant, which is, like, these really insane uh, hearing aids. And so, uh, so Austin Chapman had this uh, doctor's appointment where he got in, he got fitted for his hearing aids, and he walked into that doctor's appointment not ever having heard anything in his life, and he walks out now able to hear. And as he's driving away from the doctor's appointment with his friends in the car, uh, they play for him a piece of music from Mozart. They play uh, a piece from Mozart's Requiem. It's called the Lacrimosa. It's the most beautiful piece of music anyone has ever written, and you can't convince me otherwise. It is stunning and amazing. And so he's leaving this doctor's appointment, listening to music. And, I, and as I hear that story, I think, you know, what would it have been like to try to explain to someone like Austin Chapman what, it, what music is like? How, how do you, like, describe it in a way using, like, terminology when they don't have any frame of reference for what that looks like? I mean, you could use, like, colors. Uh, maybe you could talk about life experiences, emotions. But how do you explain what music is to somebody that's never heard it? And I think that this morning's passage, he's going to talk about the end times, like what's going to happen at the end of all things. And in that context, talking about that, um, how do you describe that to somebody who has never experienced it before? I think, I think it's, it's just as difficult. Now, Paul's going to do his best. I think he's going to do a phenomenal job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. Um, but there's this sense that we get that he's trying to describe things that are kind of indescribable, you know? Like, we'll get there, and we'll be like, oh, that's what Paul was talking about. But definitely, we have this, like, sense of, man, there's more to it than what we're able to grasp. And I, I love the thought of just diving into um, this whole thing. So let's start in verse 13. Paul's writing to this little church, and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not— who, um, I'm sorry, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul's writing to them, okay, this little church, and he's just saying, he's been answering some things now. He's like, look, I, I don't want you to be uninformed, my brothers and my sisters. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep um, because I don't want you to grieve like people who don't have 
hope, okay? And so he's, he's affecting, like, talking about their grief, trying to help them understand it, trying to help them explain what this looks like. And in doing so, he's going to talk about the people that they've lost, the people who have fallen asleep, which is just a euphemism for dying. And I was struck this week studying this, as Paul's writing to this church, he's, he's writing to specific people, right? And these people had this question for Paul about people who have, like, put their trust in Christ, but then have died, and they're saying, like, what happens with them? And as they're doing that, it struck me that they have specific names and faces in mind when they're talking about this. And I think it's important for us to recognize, you know, Paul never wrote any uh, theology textbooks. We, we tend to think that he did. We tend to read all these like they're theology textbooks. But what Paul actually did is he wrote pastoral letters, okay? And so he's looking at specific people, right, who have lost specific people in their lives. And Paul's giving these words in a practical context to address that situation. And so for us, what I'd like to do, it would be easy for us to d- walk through this passage, talk about the eschatology, all the end times things, talk about death in general, those kinds of things. But what I'd like us to do instead is to kind of take a step back and I invite you to personalize it. Now you can all kind of protect your own emotions here and you can, you can, you can take that invitation or not depending on what's healthy and where you're at. But I would invite you if you are so inclined um, to just take a minute and instead of us talking about people who have died in general, to invite you to think of a specific person in your life. Maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend. But to take a minute and just say, you know what, I I will, I'll personalize this and let's think through everything Paul says, almost like allowing Paul to be a pastor to each of us and kind of guide us through that. So take just a minute, if if you want to, just take a minute. What name, what face comes to mind when you think of somebody that you love dearly, who you've lost? Okay, and now, having those faces and those names in mind, let's try reading again verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those specific people who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, it changes it for me to to be thinking now about my grandparents, to think about friends of mine, you know, that I've lost. It makes it a different thing. And so Paul's coming into that and saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. He, now, look, he's, he's not telling us don't grieve, right? When you lose somebody, don't grieve. Don't be sad. Why would you cry there with the Lord? No, he's not telling us not to grieve, but he's saying in your grief, uh, don't grieve like someone who doesn't have hope. There's something different. If, you, if your whole worldview, if your way you view things is that we die and we disappear and that's it, let's just all kind of um, dry our eyes and move on, like that's a different kind of a grief this is something where he's saying, yes, grieve. Yes, there's loss. Yes, there's someone that we're missing, that we're missing out on. But he's saying, let's grieve for those people in a way that reflects the hope that we have. And so Paul is going to explain what that looks like um, in the following verses. So here we go, verses 14 through 16. There's a lot in here. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
So here he goes, and he's talking about, okay, don't be uninformed. Here's what's going to happen with these people that we love so dearly, that we miss, that we feel the loss of. Here's what's going to happen with those that have believed in Christ and have died. And he first starts by setting the foundation in verse 14 with this, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So because of this, because of this fact that Jesus himself died and rose again, because of this, through Jesus, God is in the same way going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's just the thing that undergirds it, the thing that makes this hope possible, is that when we experience our own death, he's saying, because Jesus also experienced death, but then rose in victory over death, because he came alive again, the amazing statement Paul makes is, because Jesus did that, died, and rose again, we know that those who die in the Lord are going to, in the same way, die, but then rise again. There's life. It's not the end. It's not final, because Jesus has conquered death, and it's a beautiful Beautiful reminder. It all happens through Jesus. And so what he's doing is he's addressing uh, the fears of the Thessalonians. Like, I've, I've lost this person. I'll never see them again. I'll never get it back. What am I missing out on? What are they missing out on? And he's going to address it all. And he, he says he's going to do it by a word from the Lord. And what, what I think that means is um, I think he's referencing, like, this is something Jesus taught us about. This is, we have a word from the Lord on this. And if you go back to Matthew 24, um, we find Jesus is on, like, the Mount of Olives. And he's, like, explaining how the world's going to end. And everything that Paul says in this chapter, and actually in the next chapter, too, as we continue on in these things, everything in here is in Matthew 24, as Jesus is talking about this. All, like, all the same things, the trumpets and the clouds and the descending and all these kinds of things. And so I think what Paul is doing is he's taking a teaching of Jesus, and now he's applying it to these specific people and explaining this is how that matters. This is what it means for you. So, so what happens? He says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying basically, don't worry, okay? We're, we're here waiting for Jesus to come back, and he's like, already you're, you're grieving because you've already lost some of your friends. Some of your family have already gone. And he's saying, don't worry. We're not going to get there ahead of them. There's no advantage in us, with us in terms of being with the Lord in staying alive longer. We're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. I, I love that he describes, too, he describes us as those who are left, right? Those who are alive, those who are left. I feel like it just gives me that picture of, We've sort of been like, you know, uh, we had this place in our life that that person met, right? That that person fit, and now they're missing from it, right? This is, I think, where the pain of grief comes from. When we have somebody, like, think of what makes it hard to lose somebody that we love. I think the the core of it, the heart of it often is um, we miss them, you know? We miss them. That's someone that we love and care for that, that, like, filled a relational space in our lives, there was a relational function we had with that person, and now that's missing, right? There was like an embodied presence that that person served. If, if they lived in our house all the time, definitely there's just something about they were always there, and now they're not. Or even if it was, you know, grown up and, and moved out of the house and everything else, um, there still are those events that remind us, man, they used to be here. And maybe there's like part of the pain is, comes from like unfinished business that we had with that person. Maybe there's some guilt we, we feel. There's something we wanted to have said. Um, there's something we missed out on. There was something we wanted to, to do with them, a vacation we wanted to take, you know, something we wanted to experience alongside that person. And I think the pain of the grief comes from, I had them here, and now I've lost them, and there's all of this that we didn't get to do or that I won't experience anymore. And that's what hurts so bad. But here's what's beautiful with this. Paul is basically saying, he's like, look, 
in the midst of all that, the miracle is, yes, you've lost them. Yes, it hurts. Yes, you miss them. Yes, you're grieving. But the hope is simply this. It's not done yet. That person who has died in Christ because of what Jesus has done in dying and rising, that person is going to rise again as well. And so you missing them, yes, it hurts, but it is not permanent. It is, it is actually temporary, and it's going to be resolved. It's going to be fixed, and we're going to be reunited with those people again. I think that's exactly what he's talking about um, in verse 16, about the idea of, like, the, like we're not going to precede them. Uh, they're going to come, and, and with the sound of it, they're going to come back with Christ. There's going to be this reunion. So our missing them is a delay. It's an inconvenience, certainly. It's kind of an intermission. And then we get this reunited uh, reunion with those people. It's a beautiful thought. So where, where are these people now? I, I, you know, Paul doesn't address that here, but from other scriptures, like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, how when we are, he says, when we're here in the body, we're absent from the Lord. But he's like, what I really want is to be absent from my body and present with the Lord. So he's saying, that's what it is. When I leave this body, I'm with the Lord. So now, what does that look like? Like, there's a lot of details there that don't get filled in in the Bible. But it does seem like those of us that, like, trust in the Lord, when we, when we are gone from these bodies, we're with the Lord. Think of, think of Jesus with the thief on the cross, right? He's hanging there, being crucified, and there's this thief next to him, never done a, a positive thing in his life, as far as we know. And he just looks over at Jesus, and right before he breathes his last breath, just says, Jesus, uh, Lord, remember me when you enter in your kingdom. Jesus says to him what? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? To be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. So somehow, these people that we love, these people that, we've, that we're missing, they are, they are not here with us, and that's hard, but they are with the Lord. And that is a beautiful, beautiful reminder. And I think what this passage is describing, and at the end of verse 16, it talks about the dead in Christ will rise first. I think what it's describing is they've been with the Lord, but there's going to come the time where they're going to rise, like where they get their bodies back again. So think of Jesus when he, like he's saying it's going to happen in the same way it happened with Jesus. So when Jesus died and he rose again, he had a body back. He wasn't floating around like a ghost. He had a body, right? And, and uh, Thomas could touch his like hands and his feet, right? They could touch him. He was eating with them. It was crazy. He also, like, seemed to go through walls, which is kind of cool, right? But so the idea is a physical body back again, a resurrection body, maybe better, right? Um, fit for the new creation that God's doing. But they, So I think the idea is they're with the Lord, and when the Lord comes, and those people come back with him, and he gifts them their bodies back, which is a beautiful, beautiful thought. And all the, all the scenery, all the, like, the setting to this, the language that Paul uses, he talks about, a cry of command. He talks about a trumpet blowing. He talks about Jesus coming on the clouds. And a lot of what Paul is doing here is he's both referring back to Matthew 24. It's all, like I said, it's all in there in that passage. Um, but also he's looking back to the Old Testament and he's picking up some beautiful themes there too. So for example, in Exodus 19, Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And so he's meeting him with, with him, and when he's there, there's smoke, and there's clouds, and it's, there's thunder and lightning. It's really intense when Moses is up there. And so then Moses descends from the clouds and the smoke. He descends, and there's these sounds of trumpet blasts coming from uh, the top of the mountain as Moses descends with the law of God, the law that is going to govern and rule over God's people as Moses carries them down. And here is Paul I think referencing that intentionally from Exodus 19 and saying Jesus is going to come on the clouds. And there's going to be this shout and this, this trumpet sounding and Jesus is going to descend. Now in, with Moses, it was the law descending down to rule the people. Now it is Jesus himself coming, descending to rule over his people and to be with us. It's a beautiful comparison. 
He talks about the clouds, like coming on the clouds, um, that this is what Jesus is going to do. And I think that's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. So if you, if you want homework, you read Matthew 24, read Exodus 19, read Daniel chapter 7. What, what's so cool is whenever the Bible starts talking about end times things, like how the world will end, it just keeps referencing itself over and over and over again. It just keeps drawing these lines and connections of things that God said in this context and in that context. But in Daniel 7, what's happening is Daniel's in captivity and he's given this picture this vision of one like the Son of Man, it says, coming on the clouds, and he comes and he, he comes on the clouds and he receives his eternal dominion, his kingdom, to rule over all the earth forever and ever in a reign that never ends. And so here is Paul saying, don't worry, like Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, he's coming on the clouds, he's going to receive his kingdom, he's going to rule. But the thing that Paul adds, it's so beautiful, is when he comes, he's coming with those people that we've lost He's coming with my grandparents. He's coming with my friends. He's coming with your kids. He's coming with those people that we've lost. And when he comes back to receive his kingdom and, and to be with his people, he's coming with these people. And it's just such a beautiful, comforting, amazing thought. This is what it will look like when it happens. And so Paul says in uh, verse 17, he goes a little bit further here. And he says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so kind of like what the, what the scenario seems to be, I'm going to just try to put this in like mechanical terms for us. Okay, so what seems to be happening is um, there's going to come a day, okay? Maybe in our lifetime, maybe like in, you know, 20 generations from us lifetime, who knows, right? But there's going to come a day where all of a sudden, you know, we're just like doing our business and then there's these like massive trumpet sounds and archangel shouts, you know, somehow, whatever that looks like. And then we're going to look up and we're going to see the Lord coming. Like that's the picture that he paints. In, in Matthew 24, it's like, it's very clear every eye is going to see him. So I don't know how he'll accomplish that, right? But he's going to come back and we're going to be like, there he is, right? And Paul's saying that in this, in this like picture of that, right, the shout comes and Jesus is coming from heaven to earth. Like he's appearing to us. And what we can see then is he's coming with these, um, these saints that we've lost that have fallen asleep in him. So they're coming with him. And the first thing that will happen as he's coming down is their bodies that have been planted like seeds in this physical earth are going to rise. And they're going to get their bodies back, but they're going to be those new creation, beautiful bodies. And so they get all this, right? And we're just standing here looking with our mouths like agape, and we're just like, what? And then all of a sudden, right, we just like rise up to meet them in the air, you know? And so we're going up there to be with them, reunited with the Lord and with all these people. And then I believe what's going to happen then is we come back down to earth, and then we experience this like, eternity with him. He says, so we'll be with the Lord forever. I think that's the picture that Paul's painting. Now, you can be sure when it comes to end time stuff, there is a lot of disagreement on these things, okay? So there's all, a lot of different ways to frame it. Um, I don't believe this is like a, a clear like rapture picture where like, you know, all of a sudden like most of us vanish, you know, it's like, what, where'd everybody go? You know, like we're in this room and I think probably like 99% of us are gone, but I, I mean, I'm sure that like, there's like one or two of us that aren't going to clear the ceiling, you know? Um, and then everyone's like, wait, what just happened? I think what he's describing is a loud sound and a, and a clear picture, and Jesus is back, and he's coming back, and there's, there's like this end of the whole thing. He doesn't say anything about timing in here, except in the next passage that we're going to look at next week, he talks about the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord that's coming, which always in the Old Testament is this picture of when God wraps things up. But nevertheless, there is plenty of room for disagreement here. You are certainly welcome to like put a timeline to it that looks different than what I see. Just know that as you do that, mine is the correct one, okay? 
Um, but as we look at that, okay, as we look at the mechanics and, and how it's going to work and they're coming down and we're meeting them, and we're, I think the idea of us going to meet them and then, and then we come back to earth, I think it, what, what it looks like is in the, in the, at that time in the Roman colonies when, uh, when like the emperor or, um, or like, you know, his official entourage or army or whatever would come through, they would come out of the city, they would go and greet him and meet them and celebrate them and bring them back into the city together. It's the exact same thing actually with... Um, Jesus, with the triumphal entry. Remember Palm Sunday? They go, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. The people go outside of the city of Jerusalem to meet him, and they're waving the palm branches, and they escort him back into the city. And I think this is the picture that we're given, right? We go and we meet them, and then we, we come back, and we're with the Lord forever. That whatever we're look, seeing here, it has to fit with the picture of Revelation where it wraps up. And if you think of Revelation, what happens at the very end of it all is there's, there's all this trouble, and there's this strife, and there's all this suffering, and then there is... Um, there is John looking up in the air and he sees a new heavens and a new earth coming down. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down from heaven to earth. It's not people vanishing up into the sky. It's actually God himself bringing his dwelling place down to the earth. And we get to live forever with him in this new creation where every tear is gone. Death is no more. Sin is no more. This beautiful thing here in this world that's kind of purified somehow and remade somehow, and it's very complex, and it's never as clear as we want it to be, but that's the idea. And so I think here that's exactly what Paul's describing. Jesus coming from heaven to earth to set up his kingdom, to live with us forever, this beautiful, beautiful picture of restoration and healing um, and us being restored. It's, it's really a lovely, lovely, comforting picture. And so that's the mechanics, okay? I think that's how it kind of works, and I resisted the urge to give you a diagram or a timeline or anything like that. You, as any seminary prof worth their salt would have given you a timeline and a diagram of what that looked like. But I think sometimes we can get caught up in the mechanics of it, and we can miss what it's actually saying. And so this is where I want to help us this morning. So my girls have gotten really uh, into basketball. So they, like, they love it. They're eating it up. They're working really hard with it. I, it's been so fun to watch them do it. And part of their basketball education is we've been going back and watching some of the greats. And so the other day we were watching um, Michael Jordan in his, uh, his final uh, NBA Finals appearance with the Chicago Bulls, okay? And, uh, and he's there, and it's game six, okay? So the, the Bulls were up three games to two games against the Utah Jazz. And whoever wins this game, like if, if the Bulls win it, that's it, right? They, they've won the championship. So 25 seconds left, the Bulls are down by one point, it's 85 to 86, and Michael Jordan, with like 25 seconds to go, strips Carl Malone, comes down the court, all the Bulls come down the court, and they spread out around the outside edge of the court, and, and Michael Jordan's there at the top. And he cuts from the left side over to the right side, he starts to drive, and kind of gets past Russell, who's guarding him, and Michael Jordan just stops instantly and uses his hand to just get, gently guide Russell past him. That's what that was, you guys know. <laughs> And, uh, and he just raises up in the most glorious jump shot ever and just flicks it in, and it goes in, and they win the game, and it's like this epic moment. Um, and so that's the, the mechanics of it, okay? I just described to you how it happened, right? But what did it mean? What did it mean? It meant, it meant oh, it meant so much. This was the culmination of Michael Jordan's career, and we're just going to pretend he didn't come back and play for the Wizards again later. So it's the culmination of his career. It's the, it was the... the um, the, sealed the victory for his second three-peat. He and his Chicago Bulls won the NBA Finals three times and then again three times, right? Just this epic thing. It forever secured beyond any doubt his status as the GOAT, as the greatest of all time. Nobody's going to fight me on that. That's great. First service had something to say. He is the GOAT. You're good. Um, but what it meant, right, was the culmination of his entire career and everything that he'd been working for, and it was this beautiful moment of glory, right? 
So now if we step back and take it way more seriously, the mechanics of Jesus coming and, and those who have died in the Lord coming with him and us going to meet him in the air and then coming back here, that's the mechanics of it. But what does it mean? What is it actually about? And, and I think we have to kind of stop and, and soak it in and just remember, okay, the whole point of this is not getting the timing right. It's not uh, getting the, the mechanics and the route right, right? It's really not about who's going to float where in the air or whatever, right? What this is about is a resurrection that we get to experience. It's about getting to be with the Lord forever. I mean, don't miss that. It says, like, and because of this, so in this way, we'll always be with the Lord. That's the whole point of this whole thing, right? And don't miss that not only do we get to experience resurrection and being with the Lord, he's also promising us that we get to be once again with those people that we've lost. He's going to reunite us with those people that we love and that we miss, where our hearts are just ripped open. And that is the beautiful, beautiful promise in this passage. Um, th- those of you that are uh, Marvel fans might have watched WandaVision, and there's this line in there that everybody um, lost their minds over, which uh, I think it's Vision that says, um, what is grief but love persevering? Which is a great line. I mean, it's really a great line. Um, what is grief except it's just love persevering, right? The, like, the person's gone, but my love won't stop. Like, w- that's what grief looks like, right? Um, or th- one of my favorite bands is Arcade Fire, and they have a song where they talk about um, when our love is gone, where does it go, right? And I, I love that picture of just, my love is still there, but I've lost the object of my love. What do we do with all that? Um, and all this comes down to how we process our grief, right? We long for that person. We want to see them. We want to be with them. I, re- I read this great book from Raymond Mitch and Lynn Brookside on um, dealing with grief over losing somebody. And they basically asked the question, like, what, what do we want when we want that person back again? So much of what we want is we want to experience things with them again. We want to take the vacations we didn't get to take. We want to give to them, receive from them. We want to experience life with them some more. And they say this. They say, those of us left behind have a way of torturing ourselves with earthly concerns while our loved ones are prepared to bask in a light that outshines the sun. It's such a beautiful reminder and picture that, man, all the little things that we think we're missing. I kind of picture it like this, like... um, we think of the people that have uh, died, and they're with the Lord, right? And we think, man, look at everything they're missing out on, you know? I think with my grandparents. Like, they're, they're going to miss seeing my, my girls get married, see them graduate. Like, they're going to miss all those things, right? And so we tend to look at them and think, think of all the things they're missing out on. But just know, right? Flip it around and imagine. These people are, like they say, basking uh, in a light that outshines the sun. They're there, and I'm sure if they can see us, they're sitting here thinking, oh, look at all the things they're missing out on, right? The beauty of all this, the beauty of all this is like, what happens to our love for these people? Like, where does it go? I I think what this is ultimately saying in the biblical picture is this, that it's not wasted, right? Our our love doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just get filed somebody. Our love goes to to the one who created love, the one who is love himself, right? And he holds it for us. And then he's promising here that he reunites us with those people that we love and that we miss. That we are simply on intermission with those people. That, that all the unfinished business gets an opportunity to be fulfilled, to be reunited, to be restored. It's a beautiful picture, and I love that he paints it like this. Jesus is coming, and who's coming with him? All of our friends, all of our loved ones, all of these people that we miss so dearly. They're coming with him. They're going to be sort of our hosts, right? They're going to be there to greet us, to welcome us in. And I love that picture, man. I love that, that reunion thing. So they're going to be there. They're, these people that we miss, that we love, and not just them, right? We're also going to get to meet the Apostle Paul, which will be amazing. We'll get to meet Martin Luther, and we'll get to meet Martin Luther King, which will be great. 
Um, we'll get to meet uh, people like Amy Carmichael, Flannery O'Connor, like well, all, these, all these amazing people, right? We're just going to be geeking out on all the amazing people that we get to meet. But also, not just them, right? Who else will we meet? We'll get to meet the thief on the cross, whose only thing was like a moment of faith, a moment of clarity of seeing Jesus. Like, we'll get to meet him, right? And we're going to meet thousands of other people that like we would be sure we'd never spend any time with them in this world and we'd be certain they'd never be there. But in a moment of need, they put their faith in Jesus, which is all he invites us to do, to connect ourselves to him and experience that eternal life. Just think of this epic, epic reunion that's going to happen when he comes back and he brings these people that we love so deeply. It's going to be amazing. You know, our whole, our whole lives, uh, and, and through all of humanity. So from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, there's death that enters the world, right? Sin brings death, and it's been happening. So death of loved ones that are torn from us physically, right? The sin that destroys our relationships and puts us, makes us estranged from each other. All this. And, and, and I was struck this week by the fact that, you know, God could, like, he doesn't need to forgive us. He doesn't need to give us a second chance. And yet he does. Isn't that beautiful? That he offers us forgiveness and healing and reconciliation with him. But I find it even... Uh, an added layer of beauty, I guess I should say, that not only does he give us a chance to be right with him, he also offers us, as death is ripping people away from us left and right throughout our lives, the longer we live, the more this happens, as, as we're ripped away from each other, he's offering us not just reconciliation with him, but he offers us our loved ones back. He gives us that opportunity to connect with them again, to be reunited, and it is such a beautiful, beautiful picture. So what happens with our bodies, I just want to share this briefly. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. It's such a beautiful picture. What, what we sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Th this is what's promised us. In, in, I think it's latent in the passage here. Jesus comes back. The dead in Christ are raised. They get their bodies back, but they're like this. The new bodies, new creation bodies, fit for the new world that God's making. We ourselves go meet them in the air. I think that's a picture of our own kind of transfiguration in a sense to... It's less about the timing. It's less about who's going where. It's just about this idea of this reunion. So if I could go back to Austin Chapman, okay? So he's there, and he can hear for the first time, and he's listening to Mozart's Lacrimosa. It's beautiful, beautiful. And he's driving, and what's happening is now that he can hear these beautiful sounds, he starts to tear up, right? And he feels like kind of a baby for, like, crying over something as silly as, like, these sounds, right? And so he's kind of trying to hide his tears, and then he kind of looks around, and he sees that everyone else, his friends in the car with him, are also crying, right? Because, not, not because of the mechanics, right? The mechanics are sound waves that go and they hit an eardrum and, and in his case hit some kind of hearing aid device that does something with it. I don't understand that at all, but it's not the mechanics of it. It's what it means, right? It's what it means that we can create things that are so beautiful, that are so meaningful. I mean, the fact that Mozart wrote this lacrimosa as part of the Requiem, it's music for a funeral to celebrate the loss of somebody, to mark the loss so it's what it means. And they all knew this is significant. This has meaning. This has depth. It's a beautiful, beautiful reminder. And look, I think the idea is um, Paul's saying this is what this means. This means, this makes it so that we can grieve. We should grieve. We have to grieve. We can't help but grieve. But as we grieve, grieve with this hope undergirding the whole thing. 
Keep this, this hope in your heart as you grieve, and it changes it into something more beautiful. And so his last words in this section, in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Now you might think that when Paul talks about end time stuff that he had actually said, therefore debate one another with these words, okay? Um, but he doesn't say that. What's the point? Why is he explaining the end times? Why is he explaining um, this whole thing of, of resurrection and us going and them coming and all this kind of, why? So that we can encourage each other with these words. So when we experience this loss so that when our hearts are just ripped out of our chest and we're processing the loss of someone we love so deeply, we can be encouraged with knowing, look, God's got it fixed. God's got a handle on this. And the timing is never our timing. And, and his, the amount of pain he thinks I can handle is always, like, way more than I think that I can handle, right? But in all that, there's grief that has this hope undergirding it. I, I just, I love, we've been talk, calling this series um, uh, that the Thessalonians were this community that were shaped by the word of God. Paul's just overjoyed throughout these letters of how they've heard the word of God and how they've responded. And I'm reminded with this that the word of God is not just meant to form our eschatology. It's not meant to form our charts, our timelines. Um, it's meant to also touch our emotions, too. It touches us at the core of who we are. So he says, grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. Grieve with this in mind. Encourage each other with these words. So as we um, close out this time in the word, and as I invite the band to come back on up, um, I want to just give us a moment again um, to think about those specific faces, those people that we love that we're missing. And so just take a second to kind of get those people back in mind again, those people that we love that we miss. And Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, um, I first just want to say thank you for the, the gift of those people. Lord, thank you for the years that we had. In some cases, thank you for the days or hours that we had with these people. Lord, thank you for that you gift us uh, to each other in this way. It's amazing. Lord, beyond that, thank you so much that you are coming back for us, that you love us, and that our prize at the end of it all is we get to be with you forever. What a gift. So much more than we deserve. Lord, thank you for that. And then, Lord, on top of that, I just thank you so much on behalf of my brothers and sisters here as we've thought of these specific faces and people that we love so dearly that we miss every day. Thank you, Lord, that you promised us this reunion with them in your presence. Thank you for the transfiguration of our own bodies and also of these relationships. Lord, how amazing, how amazing to be reunited with these people and to know that it's come through you. And Lord, for the person that's here that, that hasn't uh, known that connection to you, that hasn't experienced the hope that comes and seeing that you've died for us and that you've risen again, I just pray, Lord, that you, would per that you yourself, Lord, would extend that invitation in their hearts to see you as you are, to see your arms stretched open wide as we took this wine and this bread that we, we would be reminded that every person here would feel that invitation to experience the way that you broke your body for us, that you spilled your blood for us so that we could experience healing and that we can have this hope that undergirds it all. Lord, would you do the inviting? Would you engage us so that we can do that business with you that we need? Lord, as we worship, Lord, may we praise you and may we glory and celebrate this hope that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.